Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. We've been off the last couple of weeks in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, but we are back now. And our first guest is one of the most respected chroniclers of the modern Olympic Games, the one and only Phil Hirsch. Phil, thank you for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure, Jeremy. It's nice to speak to everybody, and I wish everybody to be well, stay safe, and stay home. How are you doing? I mean, there's been so much to report on in the Olympic movement the last couple of weeks. Um, how have you been managing that as we're also all dealing with this new reality? Well, actually, um, since a lot of what I'm doing now is for my own blog, it's been a, a welcome diversion. Writers write. That's what we do. Um, and even though I'm writing about essentially the subject that's causing anxiety for all of us, it does allow my mind to focus on something else than, than the statistics and the other stuff that if you keep following it for, uh, relentlessly all day, it's pretty terrifying. You spent all that time at the Chicago Tribune. Now, well, where can people find your work? Most of my figure skating work has been on NBCSports.com website. I've been working for them for a couple of years. And generally, though, it's my blog, which is uh, if you put my name in and globetrotting, it'll pop up. So, Phil, you know, we got the news. Um, we're speaking now on Tuesday, and we got the news eight days ago that the IOC um, – in coordination with uh, the Japanese Olympic Organizing Committee in Tokyo, uh, made the decision, of course, to postpone the Games. Now we know they'll take place almost exactly a year after they were supposed to take place, a late July opening ceremony in 2021. Um, what's it going to be like? What are the challenges pulling this off a year later? Well, first of all, there's the biggest challenge, which the IOC in its traditional we're more hubristic than anybody way did not even acknowledge when they sent out the new dates. I mean, there is no 100 percent guarantee that this will be able to be held as rescheduled. So let's start with that. Let's hope that it's rescheduled. Let's hope that the coronavirus is under control enough by then to do it safely. Let's hope that there is a vaccine in place. So the challenges are gigantic. Um, first of all, you, you can start with, I mean, the Japanese Olympic Committee, I'm sorry, the Japanese Organizing Committee has basically rented a lot of these venues for a year uh, this year, and now they've got to re-rent them. So presumably that's double paying. Uh, you know, you never, with Japan, it's a little more complicated because we always talk about Japan Inc. and this kind of... Uh, intermeshing of interests among various parties in Japan, so there may be less double paying than there might have been in another country. Um, then you've got to maintain the venues until then to keep them in, in the perfect condition. Uh, and presumably, if, if, if the health situation allows, you're going to have to do some test events in some of them, which were canceled. Um, you've got to finish up the qualifying. 57% of, of uh, qualifying spots were allocated according to the IOC, which leaves 43%. And that leaves, in terms of the United States, that leaves our two biggest sports, or the three and the three most popular sports, uh, athletics, track and field, gymnastics, and swimming. 
And then you've got the, you know, changing all the hotel reservations, changing. All, what do you do with the tickets? I mean, if you could stick uh, under the hard terms of force majeure, you could say, if you don't want to use this ticket, we're not going to refund you your money. Um, somebody suggested to me that the, the, there would be such demand for tickets turned back that probably, and in the interest of public relations, at some point, the organizers may say, look, if you don't want your tickets, let us know. We'll refund your money or we will resell them. Um, so there's that. And then there's the, the consideration of the apartments in the Olympic Village, approximately 5,000 apartments which were supposed to become uh, open to the people who buy them by the beginning of 2023, uh, that obviously that may be delayed. Um, some people have put down significant deposits. And then the, just the general cost. I mean, I've seen estimates of anywhere from 3 to $5 billion in extra cost to Japan for postponing the games a year. So the challenges are considerable. We're speaking with Phil Hirsch, the Olympics writer, correspondent for so many years with the Chicago Tribune, also writes now for NBCSports.com. And Phil, you know, there was a lot of criticism of the IOC for taking as long as it did to make this announcement that the games would be canceled or postponed. Um, but there were a lot of complicating factors and they had to get their ducks in a row. What, what did you think about some of the public reaction to the delay announcing the delay? Well, a lot of the they bring a lot of this on themselves with absolutely staggeringly awful public relations. Right. From the moment on March 4th after an executive board meeting, the executive board is the kind of the ruling body of the IOC. Uh, when uh, the president, Thomas Bach, said neither the word postponement nor cancellation had been mentioned. And I just sat back saying to myself, really, that's either not the truth right. or you're being incredibly, incredibly irresponsible by not at least saying, you know, having someone have said, are we going to deal with the possibility of either of these things? So there's that. And then when they announced that, that they'd reached a situation where they might postpone the games and it might take up to four weeks for them to reach a decision. And at the same time, they urged athletes, many of whose families had members dying, members hospitalized, friends, other fellow athletes, they said, you know, go prepare the best you can. I mean, how insensitive could you possibly be? So obviously behind the scenes, a whole nother narrative, well, hidden narrative was going on. It was clear that the public decision to ask for a postponement was going to have to come from Japan um, just for for the sake of uh, not trying to uh, be bigger than than a sovereign nation. So what was going on in the background clearly was getting Japan to the point where they were willing to accept this possibility and discuss it publicly, as the Prime Minister Abe did about a week before they announced that it would be postponed. But what the public saw, what the general public saw, was an organization that couldn't get out of its own way in terms of public relations or, or sensitivity. Isn't it also about, Phil, I was thinking about this a lot, too. Um, you know, when the public thinks of the IOC, they don't think of it as an organization. And this is a problem with a lot of big organizations, not just the IOC, but they certainly come to mind, where they don't have any reason to believe, based on history, that their priorities are the right priorities. Exactly. You get in a situation of, of why would you trust these people? 
And particularly here in the United States, the only most people never even knew the IOC existed until the Bid City scandal exploded in, in two thousand starting in nineteen ninety nine and then going almost all the way to the Salt Lake City games, uh, which were the center of the scandal, but not the only city involved in in uh, underhanded uh, behavior for for um, to win the right to host the Olympic Games. So. All of a sudden, people discovered who the IOC was in the United States. And uh, we also have to remember we are not the only place in the world. There are 206 National Olympic Committees. And then, and, and, uh, and a lot of this is also the English-speaking world. Um, so from then on, whatever people knew about the IOC was totally negative. And again, it probably disappeared from public's, the public consciousness until uh, this and when it was on everybody's mind, and then you know they they misstep after misstep after misstep in terms of public relations. We're speaking with Phil Hirsch, the Olympics writer, about the postponement of, I believe they're still going to be called the Games of the Thirty Second Olympiad. Although, as Olympic um, aficionados, if I may include myself in that designation, along with you, Phil, we know that an Olympiad is four years a four-year time period, and the 32nd Olympiad, that four-year time period, ends now. Are these still the games of the 32nd Olympiad? If they're going to be the 2020 Olympic Games, I suppose they have to also still be the games of the 32nd Olympiad. Um, somebody did a very, very clever graphic in which they took 2020 and added O-N-E, I'm sorry, added N-E at the end, so you get 2021 as a lovely little graphic. But they're going to call, Japan wanted it called the 2020 Olympic Games, so it will still be called the 2020 Olympic Games. You know, in terms of, you know, there there are some parallels with the big boycotts in 80 and 84, uh, 76, 29 countries, smaller boycott in 88. But, you know, we just don't know now how many lives are going to be affected by this, how many careers are, you know, things are just going to be different as they would be every time something like this is delayed and you're on a four-year cycle. Um What's your sense of some of the stories that you're watching for people who might age out because of this? Or uh, look, we're in a very uncertain time. There's much, there are much bigger stakes than whether or not you can uh, participate in the Olympics. But, but on, um, on those terms, um, are, are there athletes who, who would be viable this year? Obviously there are some. Are there prominent ones who, who you don't think might be next year? Well, I mean, my, my colleague, uh, the great Tim Layden, who now is writing for NBC, com did a lovely story on a rower Gevy Stone who's now a doctor and uh the the uh, miler um Al Perrier who's just come on to the scene this year um about you know so here's a new athlete and an old athlete and Gevy had decided to again put off her full-time medical career one more time for an Olympics and now she's not exactly sure what she's going to do and Al is just at the beginning and presumably gets another chance but presumably is an interesting word a lot can happen in lives um from from uh kind of cataclysmic for the life of athletes events like any, a very bad injury or any of the other things that could possibly happen so a number of athletes i think are going to be in a situation of uncertainty, even though they now have the certainty of, of when these games are supposed to be held next year. I mean, the one, the athlete, and she wrote about this in Time Magazine, the athlete whose name jumped to me immediately was Allison Felix, who came back last year after a very difficult childbirth um, and got herself in a shape enough to win the world championships. I'm sorry, to make the world championship team. And 
Allison is going to be 35 next year at the end of one of the greatest careers in the history of her sport. And you wonder, will this year be good for her? Because she'll have a whole nother year to come back from from the difficult childbirth that she had. Or will this be the moment when Father Time says, sorry, Allison, you no longer can do it. There are going to be a number of athletes, I think, in that situation. Phil, it's always a pleasure. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your unique insights into the Olympic movement. And the Olympics are the only kind of sports entity that we refer to as a movement. It's one of those things. But uh, somehow, at some point in time, everybody agreed we'd call it the movement. Phil, uh, thanks, and, and please stay safe. And you too, Jeremy, and all your all the listeners, the same. Globetrotting by philiphirsch.com if you want more from Phil.